This is episode three of Refocused with Lindsay Gensel, the science behind an ADHD podcast. How do ADHD brains learn? When the team at ADHD Online and I started brainstorming what a podcast collaboration would look like and what topics we'd discuss, there was this amazing idea thrown out there that we should build a podcast that worked specifically for ADHD brains. Interview ADHD researchers and experts and dive into how the ADHD brain learns and then take all of that information and build a podcast based on those specifications. In a perfect world, right? I procrastinated so hard on putting this episode together because there simply isn't a way to build the perfect podcast that works with the ADHD brain, because I quickly realized that I would have to take into account all of the other variables that affect when a person listens to a podcast and all of the potential distractions that could affect the way they connect to the podcast and even how they absorb information. When I started researching this episode, I reached out to the National Institute of Mental Health to see if they could recommend an expert who could shed some light on how ADHD brains learn and digest information. The National Institute of Mental Health is the lead federal agency for research on mental disorders, and it's one of the 27 institutes and centers that make up the National Institutes of Health, NIH, which is the largest biomedical research agency in the world. Two of the academic researchers they recommended, Dr. Anthony Dick and Dr. Paolo Graziano, work on NIMH-funded research in this area at Florida International University in Miami, and you'll hear parts of our conversation later in this episode. To get started, though, I want to share some of my conversation with Dr. Roberto Olivardia. Dr. Olivardia is a clinical psychologist and lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He also has a private practice in Lexington, Massachusetts, where he treats patients of all ages. His specialties include ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, as well as the treatment of eating disorders in both boys and men. My interview with Dr. Olivardia focused on the connection between ADHD and disordered eating, and you'll hear that conversation on Refocus with Lindsay Gensel soon. But I wanted to take advantage of his expertise and connection to the ADHD community, and so I started our conversation by going off script. So the purpose of our conversation is to focus on ADHD and eating disorders, but I'm hoping if we could start on the episode I'm working on right now. I'm looking at the science behind the ADHD brain, and I'm curious if there's anything you could share about what we know about the ADHD brain in regards to behavior and learning and just anything that stands out from your time working and through your research that might be something that would be interesting to share with our listeners. So one of the things that's so fascinating about research and the research we now know on the ADHD brain is that there are things that definitely are are different uh, than a neurotypical brain, but that I my hope is that people out there with ADHD, uh, I have ADHD myself, so can find very validating. So a couple of things. One is we have a number of neurochemicals in the brain. One of them is dopamine. Dopamine is implicated in reward. It's implicated in motivation. So when we are having a great time, our dopamine levels are rising. Uh, where, you know, in love, our dopamine levels are rising. When I'm in a a concert, uh, my dopamine levels are rising. So what we know about the ADHD brain is that there is a deficit in dopamine or a dysregulation of dopamine that basically leaves the ADHD brain at baseline, an understimulated brain, um, an under aroused brain. 
So an individual with ADHD, in a sense, has to do more and is always seeking more stimulation in order to feel grounded, in order to feel in the moment. Now, there's another neurochemical called GABA. Now, GABA is implicated in inhibition. So when we have appropriate levels of GABA, we are appropriately inhibited or held back from doing something that may be in our best interest. So for example, uh, a teacher might get a student upset. The student might say, oh, I want to give the middle finger to this teacher. If they have appropriate GABA levels, their brain will say, no, that has a consequence to it that wouldn't be in your best interest to do. So let's not do that. Well, an ADHD brain has lower levels of GABA, which means it's a more uninhibited brain. And we know that even uh, with delays and activation, let's say that in 30 seconds, you can create a lot of damage, you know, in, in 30 seconds of performing an action, saying something. So now you have an uninhibited, under aroused brain. Even just hearing that, I think, is really validating and really interesting to sort of know, okay, so maybe it's not so willful per se that there is this underlying biological, neurological underpinning that you know, belies the ADHD brain. Now, because of that, we also know that the frontal lobe, which is where all of our executive functions are housed, so that's all cognitive processes that we need to get things done, to execute things time management, prioritizing, working memory, all of those things, we know there's a sort of maturity lag in people with ADHD. Russell Barkley, who's the world's leading researcher on ADHD, says you almost have to think of particularly a younger person with ADHD as having a third less their chronological age and executive functions. So 21-year-old might have not the intellectual capacity, but the executive functions of a 14-year-old, which can be very puzzling to people themselves who have ADHD, to parents, to teachers, because we equate intelligence with good executive function culturally, and they're two completely different topics. So you can have someone who has a super high IQ, but has very poor executive function, and everyone thinking, oh, they're smart enough to get that done. How can they not get that done? Well, we know that the ADHD brain, it is more difficult executively. Now, with all of that, Although we know that there are those differences, that doesn't mean that people with ADHD are brain damaged or are cursed um, in, in that way. It just means that there's a different wiring that we have to sort of contend with. And for people with ADHD, there's with that understanding comes now a responsibility of, oh, okay, so I might have to do things differently than somebody else does, as opposed to, well, I have ADHD, so don't expect me to ever be on time. That's not going to fly. <laughs> That's one of the things I'm actually working on myself right now is being on time. So if I were to say to you, what should a podcast for the ADHD brain look and sound like? And I understand there's likely no right answer because what works for me is going to be different than what works for you. But does anything stand out and make you think this might work? I think just bullet points of information that people can walk away with and really see that relationship of, oh, like when I just explained about dopamine, like, oh, that makes sense why I get bored so easily. Or that makes sense why my son who has ADHD tends to kind of take it a little bit further in the stimulation category than my child that doesn't have ADHD. I think also just 
lived experiences of people who have ADHD who can speak to and give anecdotes that people can relate to. Because although you can have 10 people with ADHD in a room and there could be a lot of differences amongst those people, I do feel there is this sort of shared sensibility. Um, the first time I went to an ADHD, international ADHD conference, the first time I went in 2008, I, I've been speaking ever since at that conference, it really felt like you were sort of with your, your posse. <laughs> There's this sort of this awesome feeling of here's this community of people and it's educators, it's parents, it's young adults, it's people with ADHD, a lot of therapists who treat people with ADHD, many of whom like myself have ADHD themselves. There is this sense of understanding that goes a long way uh, for a lot of people who unfortunately, whose self-esteem sometimes can really take a hit, you know, by having ADHD. That was Dr. Roberto Olivardia, a clinical psychologist and lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He also has a private practice in Lexington, Massachusetts, where he specializes in ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, as well as the treatment of eating disorders in both boys and men. As much as we all love summer, it can be a difficult time for people with ADHD. School's out, offices tend to change up their hours and throw in those long holiday weekends, and any semblance of routine is out the window. There's so much great stuff on the horizon over at ADHDonline.com, but today I wanted to focus on giving you parents as many resources as possible to set you and your children up for success over the next three months. In a way, it kind of feels like New Year's when summer starts. A chance to rededicate yourself to a goal or reorganize your priorities in your to-do list. All of these will be linked in the show notes so you can find them easily. The first couple of articles from our blog I want to pass along focus on the parents. Whether you have children with ADHD or you yourself have it, these all have great ideas to add to your routine. Does nature exposure help your child with ADHD? walks through the ways getting outdoors can benefit the ADHD brain, including improving a person's attention span through attention restoration therapy, and it connects right back to playing in greener spaces. There's also an article on our blog that offers up summer camp ideas for children with ADHD, which is a great way to add structure to the day while helping avoid the summer slide. Finally, there's a great webinar called Shaping the Parent's Role in Managing ADHD that was hosted by Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, the co-founders of ImpactParents.com. They're an online training, coaching, and support resource for parents of complex children, teens, and young adults. Often, the school year means less time with your kids during the day, so it's never a bad idea to do a little brush-up before diving into summer it can definitely help add some ease to the adjustment period. Again, all these resources are free for you to read and watch over at ADHDonline.com. And if you have a topic you want us to cover, we would love it if you would pass it along. You can send an email to podcast at ADHDonline.com or follow us on social media and connect with our team that way. After the last couple of years, I think we all deserve a really great summer whatever that looks like for you.
Connection and community have been really important parts of my own ADHD journey. Some days simply because I know I'm not alone, that there's someone out there who gets me. And I'm really excited to connect with more of you over the summer. Lots of you have sent emails or notes on social media, and that means so much to me. The stories you've shared and to know that you feel safe telling them to me, that vulnerability and trust, I don't quite know how to articulate how it makes me feel, but it is a responsibility that I don't take lightly. So thank you for opening up your hearts to me. One thing I would like to start doing is sharing your stories, your ADHD journey. So if you're interested in putting yourself out there, please shoot me a note. Emailing me, podcast at ADHDonline.com, is the best way to contact me. Then everything's in one spot and I'm less likely to misplace it. That's a something I'm sure a lot of you can relate to. And please, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. They might seem unimportant, but those little things work into this much bigger algorithm that people have figured out or created. And that helps other people with ADHD find us. And it also increases our reach with ADHD experts. So we can continue to bring you informative conversations like the ones you're hearing today. As I mentioned earlier, I reached out to the National Institute of Mental Health in hopes of finding an expert who could help me understand how the ADHD brain absorbs information. This episode is called The Science Behind an ADHD Podcast, How Do ADHD Brains Learn? And the whole goal of exploring this topic was to see if there was a right way to develop and produce a podcast for people with ADHD. From day one, the team at ADHD Online and I have wanted to create a podcast that is engaging and fun and easy to listen to. But the biggest thing we've wanted to accomplish is providing you with information that actually matters. And here's where I have to admit defeat. I didn't find the magical, elusive blueprint for this podcast. I I tried. I really did. But what I did stumble upon is a team of researchers at Florida International University who are studying the brains of very young children with ADHD, preschoolers who have been diagnosed at a time that can be really hard to pinpoint the problem. A lot of behavioral issues that are seen at that young age are things that all children tend to display. So last week, I spoke to Dr. Anthony Dick and Dr. Paolo Graziano. It was their research on biosignatures of executive function and emotion regulation in young children with ADHD that prompted the National Institute of Mental Health to share their expertise with me. I spoke to them separately, so you'll hear parts of my conversation with Dr. Dick first, and then I'll share some of my conversation with Dr. Graziano. This is very heavy science talk. In fact, I joked with both of them that I tried to read their research, and then I tried to have Siri read their research to me, and I was lost. So I appreciate that both of them came into the interviews sharing the goal of being able to explain their research to all of us who aren't scientists. So I start by asking all of my guests to introduce themselves to the audience. So I'm uh, Dr. Anthony Dick. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and developmental scientist and professor at Florida International University. And I mainly do neuroimaging research on young children uh, diagnosed with ADHD or kids who have language impairments. So what have you been able to see when you're looking at neuroimaging? What are these brain scans showing you? Yes, this is a really good question. So we do MRI scans on children and we do them on typically developing children and on children with ADHD. 
in diagnosing ADHD, you have to check a number of boxes off. And mainly what the, one of the main things is you need to see these um, issues appearing in multiple contexts and more than one usually adult is saying there's an issue. So it's usually a teacher rating and a parent rating saying there's issues in more than one context. So that's how we sort of understand that children with ADHD look different behaviorally. And that's actually much easier to identify than when we look at the brains. And we did a paper a couple of years ago showing that uh, the brain scans actually don't show us very much in terms of dissociating a typical child or one that might be diagnosed with ADHD. We don't find that it's any better above and beyond doing the more rigorous behavioral profile that you would typically do in a, in a clinical situation. When you ask, uh, what do we see? We actually don't see anything obvious. Now, there are exceptions. So there are certain situations where if you see maybe a brain tumor that's impacting a particular area, or if you're an older child who's had a traumatic brain injury, that would uh, maybe lead to sort of an ADHD kind of uh, behavioral profile. But in general, we don't see any obvious deficits. So we can't look at a scan and say that child has ADHD. What we do is we look at as a group, are there any sort of indicators that might on average indicate that a, the child would be more likely to have ADHD or not? And we do see some indicators like that. One of them that's kind of interesting is is looking at a measure called neurite density, where we're looking at sort of the level of density of neurons in particular brain regions and seeing if that differs across children with ADHD versus typical, typically developing children. But in general, the brain scans are not showing us a lot, uh, which is surprising, but this is why we study it. What this means though, is that you should not be spending a lot of money as a parent to try and go get a brain scan to to diagnose some issue like ADHD. So I'm curious, where do things stand now that you've done these scans and you know, okay, well, there's nothing obvious we can look for when it comes to indicators. What is the next path for you? So the brain is complicated. So we're trying to figure out how these systems function uh, for different behaviors. So ADHD is not a, a singular kind of uh, disorder it's basically heterogeneous, meaning that if you take a child with ADHD, child A, and you take another child with ADHD, child B, the way that they manifest their attention deficit disorder will be very different or could be very different. So some kids maybe tend to be more hyperactive. Some kids may be inattention. Some kids are diagnosed as combined type. Some of them have impulse control problems. They're highly emotional. They have poor emotion regulation. They also come along with difficulties with anxiety. So kids look very different in the way that they manifest the disorder. So we're interested in seeing how these different brain systems that are involved in these functions, like impulse control, like emotion regulation, like executive function, we want to see how the disorder gets manifested differently in, in children within these different systems. So we're interested in how the systems work. It would be ideal if we could get a brain scan that says you have ADHD or you have schizophrenia. But the reality is these disorders are very complicated. And in some cases, you can show from a brain scan that you have a particular disorder. So for example, like uh, Parkinson's disease has a very specific cause. It's a degeneration of the substantia nigra. 
So if you can show that in some sort of brain scan, then you could more likely diagnose Parkinson's from that. You know, we've been looking for sort of the holy grail uh, from brain scans, and we still aren't finding it. So for example, Alzheimer's is still very difficult to diagnose, even if you have a brain scan. And the same thing is true for these difficult to diagnose uh, developmental disorders. So ideally, we would be able to look at brain scans and point to a disorder, but we're not finding that. And that's important to know as well. So the NIH gives us money to try to find things out and also to show what doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, it, so that's what we go and report. And we were disappointed to find this, but it's good to know. It may be the case that in the future, as we learn more, getting a brain scan might allow you to tailor a treatment better if you can show from the brain scan that their brain responds in a particular way to certain stimuli, like in, a, if, in an emotionally taxing situation. If a, a child's brain responds in a particular way, we might say focus on the emotion regulation aspect of this. But you can also show that uh, with behavioral measures. So you may not need the brain scan. I'm hoping you can walk me through the scans you are doing. So one type of scan we get is called a structural scan. And that is a kind of MRI that it's the same kind of MRI you would get on your knee or something like that if you wanted to see damage in the knee. And that will show sort of big uh, issues like a lesion or tumor or cyst or something like that. We can use that to look at structural differences. So there's an area of the brain, for example, called the, the corpus callosum. And that is a part of the brain that is a bunch of axons connecting the two hemispheres of the brain. Now, what are axons? Axons, the best way to think about them is sort of the wiring of the brain, the connections between uh, neurons. So that part of the brain is connecting the two hemispheres of the brain. And if you have a good connection between the two hemispheres, the brain works more efficiently. And you can see structural differences in the corpus callosum at the group level. So on average, you can see that maybe there's a part of the corpus callosum that looks thinner in kids with ADHD as opposed to typical kids. And another part, it maybe even looks thicker than uh, the typical kids. So you can see those on average structural differences. So that's a structural scan. Then we have another type of scan called a diffusion weighted imaging scan. And that scan measures water movement in the brain. And those axons I mentioned, uh, they're little hollow tubes and water moves through those hollow tubes uh, in the same way that water moves through a pipe. And we can actually measure the diffusion of the water through those little axonal pipes. And then we can construct a wiring diagram of the brain. And so we look at differences in the wiring diagram of kids with ADHD versus typical kids using this diffusion-weighted imaging scan. The diffusion-weighted imaging scan also gives us that neurite density measure. So it can show like if you have more or less neurons or connections in a particular brain region. And then the last scan that we use is called a functional imaging scan. And that scan measures blood flow in the brain. And blood flow measurement is important because when you use a particular region of your brain, blood flows to that region because it has what's called a metabolic demand. So when your neurons are firing, they need oxygen and then blood flows to that region to give them oxygen. And the functional imaging scan can measure the change in blood flow. 
So as you're listening to me speak, there's a part of your brain called the auditory cortex. And because those neurons are firing, if I gave you a functional imaging scan, I would see blood flow to the auditory cortex when you're hearing me speak. And then when you don't hear me speak, I would see less blood flow. And we can look at the difference between those things. I'd love to ask if you've seen anything or can share anything on what happens with the executive function that's different in the ADHD brain with blood flow compared to a non-ADHD brain. Yeah. So another task we give them, and these, these are results we've only been looking at in the last couple of months. So they're very preliminary. <laughs> this is, these are four to seven-year-old children. There's a task we give them called the continuous performance task. And it's a really simple task. Uh, they're shown pictures. They're little cartoon pictures. One of them pops up. They're in the fMRI magnet. They have a button box where they're supposed to press a button when they see a picture. So if a picture of a pair of scissors pops up or a car, every time the picture pops up, they press a button. The only time we tell them don't press the button is when a soccer ball pops up. So press the button when the scissors pops up, press the button when the car pops up, soccer ball pops up, don't press the button. It's a really boring task. So you can imagine a typical child would be super bored by it, but a child with ADHD is going to be extra bored <laughs> by that because it taxes the maintaining attention. You have to really pay attention and watch for that soccer ball. And then you have to control your behavior. You have to stop responding when you really want to respond because the only situation where you're not supposed to press a button is when the soccer ball pops up. And there's a network in the brain that is called an inhibitory control network. That's what scientists call it. And it's you know uh, five or six really important regions in that network. And we see differences in the brain network in children with ADHD on average versus typical children. What we actually see is the kids with ADHD activate the network more so than the typical children, uh, meaning that they're, they're being taxed by it. That's our assumption, at least, that they need to bring on more resources to complete the same task that the typical children do. And it's really great to see it in the regions that we were expecting. So. Um, we'll probably be publishing that paper in the next year or so. That was Dr. Anthony Dick, a cognitive neuroscientist and developmental scientist and professor at Florida International University. And now I'll share parts of my conversation with Dr. Paolo Graziano. I'm Dr. Paolo Graziano. I'm a professor of psychology at FIU, Florida International University. I work at the Center for Children and Families. And my main research over the last 15 years has been on early intervention as it relates to ADHD as well as how to understand some of the mechanisms behind ADHD in terms of their self-regulation skills, most notably emotion dysregulation. And then I do a lot of interventional work on with parents. So I do a lot of parent training, different models of parent training. And then we also run a summer camp to help preschoolers transition to kindergarten more effectively. Uh, so that's what I've been kind of doing the last 15 years. And you know, currently you mentioned you already kind of interviewed my colleague, Dr. Dick. So, you know, Anthony and I have been collaborating for the last, I don't know, six, seven years on this project, which is kind of trying to understand the heterogeneity involved in ADHD, because all kids with ADHD present differently. So we're kind of trying to understand that from multiple perspectives, which includes not just the behavioral, neuropsychological, pathophysiological, but also kind of in terms of some of the uh, brain biomarkers potentially out there. So, and, and then when we track these kids once a year to try to follow them up and see if we can start you know, helping them and predict which ones are doing better and, and why. And 
that kind of thing. So I would be curious to know what stands out when you're working with some of your younger patients. What are you seeing? Because, you know, when I spoke with Dr. Dick earlier this week, he explained what you're seeing on the brain scans. You can't really pinpoint anything on them that goes, ah, that's ADHD, you know. So are you seeing any markers or indicators that are standing out? Right. I think I mean, I think you bring out a good point. And in terms of right now, there in terms of brain differences, there aren't like something major that you can pinpoint. You can't really use any of that for diagnostic purposes. You know, we're, we're trying to understand these subtle, very subtle differences that you find here or there. I think one thing that we're finding in our project that is interesting, at least, is that, you know, in the past, people used to think of ADHD kind of more of an executive dysfunction, those organizational attentional issues and so forth. But what we're finding, and, and part of my research that I'm interested in, is that you're also finding a lot of emotion dysregulation in kids with ADHD. You know, there is that overlap with some disruptive behavior issues like oppositional defiant disorder, some mood issues. So we're finding that kids with ADHD are also more dysregulated emotionally in terms of the connectivity from kind of, you know, the limbic area to the prefrontal cortex area, where you kind of have the circuitry to try to regulate emotions. So it's not just a circuitry of regulating and maintaining your attention that it's impaired. That's what was you know, 30 years ago, the most things people were focused on, but I think in the last 10 years or so people are focusing on, it's not just that it's also the emotional component. And a lot of kids with ADHD have that. And the way that translates to the real world is that I get to see preschoolers with temper tantrums and, and have different emotion outbursts. And part of it is part of the ADHD. Part of it is the comorbidity that you see sometimes. Uh, so I tend to think of it more, what is impairing the child? Cause they're all going to look a little different. What is impairing the child? Is the school functioning, peer functioning, at home, doing homework, right? You have to really see a, an impairment. Without an impairment, you can't really diagnose and you wouldn't be very certain about it. You have to have a, a, be pretty sure how it's impacting their impairment. It could be different ways for different kids, which is part of why a diagnosis of it takes a very comprehensive exam and it can't just be a quick blood test or a quick brain scan. And what are you seeing when it comes to the emotional symptoms connected to ADHD? I'll be honest, I don't know that I had any idea there were so many emotional connections to ADHD until after I was diagnosed and I was trying to learn as much about my diagnosis as possible. And then once I saw it all there, it was like, oh, yes, that makes complete and total sense. Right. I think w one thing that you find is that kids with ADHD are, are more exuberant. So they're more reactive to both positive and negative emotions in terms of their activation, their excitement, you know, so we're finding that not just in the brain scan, but also, you know, we collect, I don't know if Anthony talked about, but we collect also pathophysiology, kind of they use the little heart rate stickers and we kind of get to see how well they're regulating at a physiological level in terms of, you know, their heart rate variability is kind of what we're kind of focused on. And we find uh, very concrete patterns that of kids ADHD compared to typically developing kids that they tend not to be able to downregulate to be, you know, if you're thinking about a stressful situation, usually you use your parasympathetic nervous system to kind of calm yourself down and kind of stay nice, cool and collected. And kids with ADHD have a harder time with that. Um, and we're finding that across, you know, frustration tasks, you know, cognitive tasks. And, you know, so we're seeing a little bit of that um, at the physiological level. And then at the brain scan level, you know, Anthony might've, you know, pointed out some difference that we're finding with the amygdala activation and we're still kind of analyzing that data. So we're not quite 
at that point yet, but we're getting close to kind of, yeah, it's, it's definitely there from our pilot. In my introduction email, I shared the topic for this episode, the science behind an ADHD podcast. How do ADHD brains learn? What recommendations would you have for me moving forward about how I approach the content I'm creating and how I'm putting it out there in hopes that I can connect with more people with ADHD in a way that works for them? I guess it depends kind of what is your ultimate goal, I guess. Well, my goal personally is I sought a diagnosis from someone else sharing their story, and I want to create something that actually works for people with ADHD. It makes no sense to put out stuff about ADHD if people with ADHD don't want to listen to it or can't listen to it or it's not working for them in that sense. And I understand that's a very broad way to look at it because what works for me and what works for the person next to me, it's going to be very, very different. But there are ways to take one big thing and break it down in different ways to make it more accessible for people, if if that makes sense. I mean, I, I guess the way I would think about it is there's two ways to think about this is one like practical kind of tidbits that are evidence-based in science that we know can help whether it's for you as a parent or you as the individual. And then like the myths of don't do this because it's a waste of your money and time type of things. So like the myth buster kind of angle. So, so that's kind of, you know, two categories that I would think you'd want to kind of expand on, you know, trying to warn people of some things that you shouldn't do that right now it's not based on science and it's just very speculative. And so one of the things I always try to get parents to think about is, is don't just believe things you see on TV or you hear, like there was a video game on ADHD that was getting all this publicity because it was FDA approved. The most ridiculous thing, anything can be FDA approved. It just means it didn't harm anybody. It doesn't mean it actually helped. So you got to be careful. Like there's the, the marketing people are just smarter than sometimes us scientists because we just also sometimes don't have time to do all this. So there's a lot of things that I think you could do as a podcaster, maybe to reach out people to think about, you know, helpful things that are based on science, you know, the parent training, daily report card. You know, there is a place for stimulant medication for sure. You know, that, 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 you know, you can't just discount that either. There are some people that are going to benefit from that and need that, but you know, talking to maybe a, a child psychiatrist that specializes in ADHD would be another cool thing to, to add to your podcast that I would recommend. Um, and then, yeah, just avoiding some of these things that are out there that are just not helpful. And I see that a lot and it's just like, Oh my God. And I'm not the most politically correct individual. So I tell parents, you're just wasting your money. Do not do this. That was Dr. Paul Graziano, professor of psychology at Florida International University. There is so much more from my conversations with both of them that I want to share, especially about the summer camp that works to get children with ADHD ready for kindergarten. It's some really fascinating stuff happening at FIU right now. And that bonus episode will be out this Thursday. So one thing I knew I would need to do is adjust the length of the episodes. That's just something you won't be able to fine tune until you put a couple of episodes out. And it's likely something I'll need to continue to look at as we release more episodes and add in other elements for Refocus with Lindsay Gensel. So with the help of my friend, uh, the person I turn to whenever I need help with a math question or with formatting a spreadsheet, 
I learned the average refocused listener right now sticks around for about 26 minutes. Obviously, there are so many variables that go into our listening habits, including when we listen, how we listen. Then you throw in interruptions and individual hyperfocus, and that list is very specific per person. So I'm hoping to start uploading portions of the show separately. Think shorter, more compact, tiny episodes to listen to when you have just a few minutes. I'm hopeful this will add another way for you all to connect with the podcast in a way that might work better for you. And my goal is to be more active on social media, to not only share the great stuff I'm learning from our experts, but to connect with listeners as well. Truthfully, and I know I'm not alone with this, I've struggled with social media being a massive distraction in my life, and I am working to find a healthy balance. And I hope what you've seen and you've heard so far over the last three episodes, I hope you're enjoying what we're bringing you with this show. And I hope you know that there is a open line of communication So share with us what you're loving or if you have recommendations or you have a guest you want us to speak to. Podcast at ADHDonline.com is the email address to connect with the entire team behind Refocus with Lindsay Gensel. And finally, one more time, a reminder to subscribe, rate, and review Refocus with Lindsay Gensel wherever you're listening today. Refocus with Lindsay Gensel is a collaboration between me, Lindsay Gensel, and ADHD Online, a telemedicine healthcare leader offering affordable and accessible ADHD assessments, medication management, and teletherapy. You can find out more about ADHD Online by visiting ADHDonline.com. A huge thanks to Dr. Anthony Dick and Dr. Paolo Graziano for joining me today, and a special thanks to Dr. Roberto Olivardia, who let me throw him a curveball. You'll hear more on the connection between ADHD and eating disorders with Dr. Olivardia on an upcoming episode. The show's music was created by Lewis Inglis, a songwriter and composer based out of Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 at the age of 39. Sarah Platinitis and Camila Eden contributed to the research for today's show, and a special thanks goes out to Rachel Coleman. Thank you so much for listening to Refocus with Lindsay Gensel, and be sure to check out the show description for more information and all of the links discussed in today's show.